Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. You are listening to episode 191 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. If you are a new listener, welcome. I recently developed this quiz based on some of the newest findings in the field of psychology around what makes someone a great lover. So if you're curious what kind of a lover are you, you can take this quiz. It tells you about some of the things that you're doing well and some of the areas that you need to improve on. It's about, it takes about five to seven minutes, but you'll get the result right away. Anyhow, our conversation today is part of our male uh, sexual wellness series. Today, we're going to talk about specifically around male sexual abuse. Unfortunately, male sexual abuse is very common, but there are not that many people that are talking about it. Our guest is Dr. Kelly Palfi, and when I was reading her book, I saw some really shocking statistic. She quoted a study that they looked into the survey, number of different men anonymously, and in the study, she noted that one out of every six men reported has been sexually violated by age 16. This is such a large number. And the other study that she talked about that was published in 2014 talked about, although the statistics are very prevalent, fewer than five out of every thousand men ever actually reported being sexually assaulted. And it was shocking for me to read about this. And I wonder how many men are out there that their entire functioning, not only sexual functioning, has been impacted because of their experiences and they haven't reached out to get help. So odds are you know someone that struggled with experiencing trauma or you are a survivor yourself and I think you will find our conversation hopefully very illuminating. As I mentioned, our guest is Dr. Kelly Palfi. She has such an interesting background that because before she became a psychologist, she was working in law enforcement, and she was respected member of Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and she was investigating these cases. And in her book, she talks about all sorts of encounters that she had with survivors and what were some of the common themes that she experiences in the survivors. She has, a, as I mentioned, that she has a unique background in working with victims of sexual abuse. She obtained her PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Alberta in 2016. She brings many facets of her unique combination of professional experience and perspective to her practice. She is now a trained trauma therapist and public speaker. She's she's been trained in so many wonderful different trauma treatment modality. You can find the link to her full bio in the show notes. And I hope you find our conversation useful. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Dr. Kelly Palfi on our show. Dr. Palfi, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. 
I'm so excited about this conversation. Uh, we were just talking about how, how much I loved your book, how, how much of a great information it provided about working with male survivors and men who experienced abuse. And I was kind of curious to see how did you get into this work? Yes, uh, Dr. Morali, I get that a lot. Uh, I get how did you get involved with this work and why as a woman are you doing this kind of work? So I'll explain that. So um, prior to becoming a psychologist, I was actually a Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer. That's the Canadian version of the FBI. And for the final four years of my career, I was working in a unit called the Integrated Child Exploitation Unit. So we were a unit that was established to respond to international cases of child sexual exploitation. So because we were a new unit, we were kind of figuring things out as we went along. And I was being trained to become a subject matter expert. And on one of these training sessions, I went to Ottawa for training under a forensic pediatrician from the U.S., Dr. Sharon Cooper. And as part of that training, we had a guest speaker who was actually a pro hockey player. So he was a pro hockey player in Canada and the U.S. His name is Sheldon Kennedy. And he came and spoke to us privately about why he had never spoken about his abuse. So he played for like the Boston Bruins, Detroit Red Wings, Calgary Flames. And this was about in 2004. So this was prior to his book release, but there had been a media talk about it. But, you know, he came and he stood at the front of the room and he said, he was just shaking. And he said, I can't believe I'm here right now. I can't believe I'm standing here in a room full of cops. And that really got my attention because he meant it. Like <laughs> he was uncomfortable. So I thought, wow, this guy's got something really important to share with us. So he, I really paid attention, obviously. So he, um, he just started talking about why he hadn't disclosed his abuse sooner. And he had reasons like, you know, his family was living in poverty and his career, his new career, was literally lifting his family out of poverty. You know, his coach had the means to help him get pro. He knew he had the skill to play pro, but his coach had the means to get him there. Everybody was so proud of him. He didn't want to disappoint his community. And he also said that he felt like some people knew about the fact that he was being abused but did nothing, or at least they should have known. And it just broke my heart. It made me realize how underserved, like, boys and men are in the population, like, that there's just, like, there's no room for men to be victims, right? And prior to becoming a police officer, I'd been a corrections officer, and I remembered wondering, like, why are there so many men in prison compared to women? Like, why so many? And it was like the lights just started to go on. And so fast forward 10 years down the road, I ended up losing my own career to bullying and harassment. And I really wanted to do something meaningful, right? And one of my professors at university, I was already started my master's degree, mentioned that he worked with male survivors of sexual abuse. And it was like, I just remembered Sheldon Kennedy's lecture to us and how that this is like such an underserved population. And I just... I just thought, you know what, I can do this. This is like, this is an area that needs attention and it interested me. And yeah, I just, that's how I got involved. Oh, wow. What a fascinating story. <laughs> and how I bet like it, it was a courageous choice from your side as well, because I work with some survivors and I feel it's, it takes a lot from a therapist. And I think like hearing those st stories day, day after day, although it's a needed 
it and such an important work can be challenging. So kudos to you for wanting to continue working with this population. But I have the same experience that my male clients, it happens to disclose to me that these are adults, that they've been abused as a child. I'm pretty much the first person that they told. And they've been in therapy before. They have other people in their lives. I would imagine because of the shame, but with my female survivors, this is the story they they said most of them they've been uh, talking about with other people. They got support around it, which I'm so glad. But you're right that it seems like when it comes to men and boys, there is this another layer of stigma associated to it. Absolutely. And Sheldon Kennedy spoke about feeling like he was living this double life. And I, you know, ironically, I could really relate to that very small piece because he said, you know, on one hand, here I am, this pro hockey player in the prime of my life like making it to the big times but then on the other hand I'm a victim and I can't talk about it and I kind of related to that because you know here I was a police officer with a badge and a gun in this really sexy position job in my mind and then I'd go home and ball my eyes out all the time because I was being bullied so it was like I kind of felt like I, I understood what it was like to not be able to to be powerless to stop it mm-hmm. to end your career you know <laughs> oh god I can I can only imagine how traumatizing that must have been and kind of getting bullied from other officers and other people in power. I think that's that's a, a bit that was very painful. So tell us about the misconceptions that it's around this topic. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think for a long time there's been huge misconceptions, like maybe not so much now because we know better, but in the past, you know, there was this idea that it's no big deal, that it's not damaging, right? That's just so not true. It's just as damaging for boys and men as it is to women, girls and women, right? Mm-hmm. And the other really big one is that it's not common. It is very common, like research shows that one out of every six boys is sexually abused to some extent prior to the age of 16. So we have this idea that it's it's not common, that is not true. The problem is that they're just not reporting. Mm -hmm. It's discussed very little, least of all among victims themselves. Another one would be, you know, this idea, it's, it's a really nice thought to think about perpetrators as monsters that, you know, drive funky vans and don't shower and are stinky and are obviously scary monsters. But that is such a misconception, right? Like, it, it almost... It's, it's a foolish way to think, right? Like these people that are offenders will go to extreme lengths to become helpful, productive, likable members of society. They put themselves in positions where they have access to children. They win the trust and affection of the families and of society, and then they offend. So it's more like the um, the wolf in sheep's, sheep's clothing than the monster that lives in the van. And it's obvious, right? So, and I mean, I think on one level, we know that as a society, we know that 90 or more percentage of offenders are someone that is known to the family, but yet we still have this idea that it's not happening close to home, right? I don't know any creepy looking guy that, you know, and that, you know, another one would be that that all offenders are males. That's just not true. Well, I'm so glad you talked about that kind of men coming in and saying that other people knew because that's my experience as well, that they said, like, how can like this uncle that did this to me, we were living in a small house. How could other people didn't know about it? What well, do you think about that? Breaks my heart. You know, I mean, I have clients like that, too. You know, dad's sleeping with the boy his whole life and mom's not doing anything about it, right? I, I can't even speak to that as to why they would allow that to go on. I, I mean, you know, I'm thinking of my clients' um, mother's explanation, and she just absolutely didn't want to be divorced. Image was everything, you know? So there's this, you know, sort of horrible idea that they have to maintain this facade of perfectness in society over protecting their own children. So 
yeah, uh, willful blindness, right? Yeah, willful blindness is huge in these instances, right? If if that was going on, it would be just too awful to accept. So I'm just going to pretend it's not going on. Absolutely. And as, as you said, there are few things play into that. A, thinking about, oh, boys are not getting abused. It's that's a girl thing. So trying to kind of like justify that, although sometimes the signs are clear. The other thing is like even from the uh, communities that are more collectivistic and kind of like if we're disclosing this, then this bring shame to the family and to the clan and we cannot have that and what's horrible and i know you talked about it in your book is usually abuse doesn't stop with one person that it goes moves to the younger sibling to another family friend and that's that's why it's essential to stop it and educate ourselves on what we can do to protect children and when if when and we, if we're noticing things that are alarming mm-hmm. you know and Dr. Morali, that's such a good point. There's two really great points you made. They're like noticing things. Like I think we need to really learn to pay attention to that gut instinct. You know, maybe our our eyes can't perceive what we're seeing, but our guts usually can, you know. I say really listen to that gut instinct. If it says something's off, something's probably off, right? Absolutely. Um, and I think it's it's it takes courage to make reports, but can I think it's important to kind of lean into the idea of even if it's true, if this is true five, ten percent, you might say so many people's future and the worst thing that can happen is okay people come and investigate and they're going to be discomfort but at least you know that down the line you did something that you you felt it was congruent with value your values and perhaps you were trying to save people which is a very honorable thing so tell us i know that sometimes we hear uh, there's a correlation between sexual orientation piece and Mm -hmm for the survivors. But tell us more about that. What have you found with, with the clients that you work with? Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Morley, maybe not so much with the clients that I've worked with, but definitely with my participants in my research. You know, a few of, a few of them spoke about confusion over sexual orientation. A lot of them said they were not confused, just to be clear, right? But there was a few that said, you know, I don't understand why my body responded, right? And the reality is, God designed our bodies to respond to touch. And if your body responded, it's just working the way it was designed to work. But yes, there is, you know, I I had a few of my participants say like, you know, why did he pick me? Did he think I was gay? Did I have some sort of a gay dar, you know? That's just not the case, right? Perpetrators look for vulnerable children to offend against. And, you know, it really has nothing to do with sexual orientation. Perpetrators are not homosexuals out there looking for homosexual victims. I mean, I mean, I know it, it happens in the homosexual community, but I'm talking about someone who would be heterosexual oriented. So it's it's just not the case. Oftentimes, if a victim is perpetrated on against by, if they're offended by their perpetrators, sex, their own perpetrator's sexual orientation, it can kind of push them in the direction of the opposite orientation. So, yeah, uh, my my advice typically when I'm working with clients is to go back to what your orientation was before the abuse occurred, right? Several of uh, one of my participants in particular, he said, you know, prior to the abuse, he had a girlfriend. After the abuse, he was confused. Mm-hmm. And then another thing that can lead to confusion, for example, is, you know, bad experiences. Let's say he was heterosexually oriented. And then he goes and has sexual relations with a female and they're both bad experiences. Not that, you know, they can question, well, maybe it's because I'm gay. Whereas really they just had bad experiences. Right. Yeah. 
one one common thing that I do see is this sort of you've probably heard of the idea of trauma bonding, right? So you get one victim, it's like they can see the pain in someone else's eyes. They relate to each other on that pain, that depth of that pain. You know, they say the this they say the the ability that you're able to feel pain that depth is also the ability you're able to feel love. Mm-hmm. So so you know you, they see that they want that deep connection, that that intimate connection, and they bond on that. But it's it's really not based on commonalities or based on, you know, proper choice of a partner. It's, it's trauma bonding. So they can wind up in situations that they might not have otherwise been in. Mm-hmm. I think also in the book, one, one great explanation that you make that I think it's so important for people to know that is this, that the, as far as when arousal show up, it doesn't mean that you, this is a wanted sexual experience uh, because I know with women that they're getting abused, they experience at times lubrication men experience erection it doesn't mean that they 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 enjoyed what was going on it was consensual this is just a way our kind of our physiology work and I think that also can be confusing for people at times absolutely and, and another part that adds to that confusion is the grooming process that occurs before the abuse right so you know there's different types of offenders which of course I discuss in my book but preferential child offenders will spend you know considerable time setting up the stage to be perfect so that their victims are quote-unquote willing participants right um so that they will you know they'll have an affection for them prior to their abuse occurring so that part is confusing too like i really like this person before the abuse occurred so they they kind of associate those feelings of fondness and then recognize you know that their body responded to the touch and then they say well you know in their own minds they say well i must have enjoyed this right but you know the reality is they enjoy the attention everybody needs attention it doesn't mean that they you know, I mean, even if their bodies enjoyed the physical touch mentally, emotionally, and they're too young to consent to, they're too young to consent because they don't know the consequences. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And and the other piece of it is that my, I hear from survivors that I work with, they, they enjoyed this kind of feeling of being the chosen one or the special one. And they feel, okay, this was a special bond that I had with my dad. And kind of they feel guilty about it when they just have a more understanding about it, a future as an adult. And we always talk about that, that, of course, you didn't have the information about sex and sexuality. And that's such a common response to come from a child. So it, it, all of these things can make kind of these experiences complicated. That makes it hard for people to make kind of understand, understand this better. The other kind of way related to sexual orientation I've seen, I think like people at times, at least in my practice, it plays out for their sex and sexuality is that they are perhaps in the same sex relationship identify lesbian or gay but they at times do the same kind of behavior that was happened for them with the opposite sex if it was the opposite sex situation and i know for some of them it's kind of like a, a repetition compulsion and they're trying to reenact that trauma so it, it all of these can be very confusing for for clients and that's why that's it's important to work with a professional absolutely and, and you're, you're bang on there we all, i mean for one thing we all want to feel special right and so they recall you know feeling special and, and that's confusing for them yes you just mentioned that you know that they're kind of judging themselves as if they knew then what they know now which is absolutely not the case just yeah just this idea that oh yeah the recreation right because they they um it's not uncommon to to have that reenactment because they're wanting to have this sort of recreation of the memory they want to recreate it so that they can you know kind of rewrite the memories if they have this illusion of control or willingness or enjoyment right they want to override those bad memories Mm -hmm. 
I didn't seem like you know there's anything wrong with them. Again, perhaps at times this can turn to this unhealthy coping strategies that, like for example, I see that survivors putting themselves in this risky relationships in order to uh, consciously or unconsciously work through some of these trauma. So tell us, what are some of the dysfunctional ways that you see that the survivors are coping after experiencing the trauma? Mm-hmm. You know, a big one that I see is hypermasculinity, right? So they'll they'll almost get this, you know, especially if they've been offended against by a male, they may, you know, engage in sports where they're really excessively displaying their masculinity, alcoholism, drugs, of course, right? Any way to dissociate or to not think about it, you know, practicing avoidance. Some purposely try to forget it, right? And numb out. Unfortunately, the consequence of that is when you numb out to the bad emotions, you also numb out to the good ones. Um, Yeah, like you said, risky behaviors, um, hypersexuality, right? So, um, like you said, re, re, you know, putting themselves in situations where they're having a lot of sex, for example, trying to prove, trying to either rewrite that memory or to prove to themselves and other people in their you know, own minds that they're not gay or something like that. So, you know, anger, right? Anger, if, you know, you have a lot of pent-up emotions, a lot of pent-up anger that you can't display towards your offender, it comes out in other ways. Another one is becoming a workaholic, right? So really anything that they might do to kind of keep themselves so busy that they can't think about what happened in their youth. Another another way, which is sort of a, the body's response, is memory loss. So unfortunately, like the body's way, I mean, unfortunately, in the, in the moment, the, the body's way of coping is to is to bury those memories, which is helpful in the short term, but then in the long term, you know, later on in life when they're safe and they're established, unfortunately, these memories can pop up. And that's something that we see quite a bit is that, you know, all of a sudden they'll have memory recovery of abuse that occurred. So that's that's a way that the body copes with the trauma. Well, I'm so glad you talked about memory recovery because I, I see it at times with clients that they say, you know, I didn't have this memory at all. And like right now that I'm in this happy like marriage or happy kind of place in my life, then I, something happened that triggered the memory and yeah. that caused them to question that is this a false memory is a, a real, real memory why I wasn't able to recall it before but exactly what you said that mm-hmm. our, our body tries to protect us so yeah. like at times even after years like when you were in that household in that situation maybe you didn't have the ability to process it and then but right now that you're at a better place that you can get those memories yeah absolutely and we know from you know experts like Bessel van der Kolk that it is the body's way of coping with trauma, coping with things that are unbearable. And, you know, as a therapist, you know, we just, we treat them as if they're real because the consequence of them is real. So even if they are questioning whether or not they're they're accurate we treat we treat the, the trauma as if it's we treat the memories as if they're real absolutely uh, so tell us what are some of the sexual dysfunctions that you notice with survivors and you know dr Marley, this is not sort of my area of expertise and I, I haven't come across you know clients talking about sexual dysfunction but what i do see a lot of is the impact of the trauma right so anxiety specifically right around you know sexual relationships you know you can have a ptsd response coming into the bedroom as well right so a victim may one day feel like you know again that hypersexuality like a insatiable sex drive and then the next day they could be like 
don't touch me. I don't trust you, right? I have one client who he was abused by his father in bed, right? So going to bed felt really scary for him. I had another one that was abused in the shower. So he never showers, you know, and these are things that can affect your, your lovemaking, of course, right? And somebody wants to go into the shower and the other one's like, absolutely not. And they may, if they haven't disclosed their abuse, that could be something that's a barrier in their relationship because, you know, I can't tell you why I don't want to have a shower, but, you know, the person on their, on the, the, the person wanting to get in the shower may be feeling rejected or, or like they're not good enough or start to have body image issues because their partner doesn't want to get in the shower. You know, it can get so complicated. Well, that's such a good point that you made. I certainly see the hypersexuality and kind of what they call out of control sexual behaviors that coming from the place of trauma that I'm so dysregulated. Sex is a way for me to cope. Let me have more of that because like the moment that I'm with myself, those emotions, those memories come up. So that's, that's one thing that I see. The other thing I see low desire in relationship that people try to repress their sexuality and sexual desire and because they connect sometimes that was the first sexual experiences that they had many of the men and they just connect sex with that all of that negativity and shame and they just they're not into it they don't want to explore that part and connected to that at times it can create issues with erectile functioning that people are not able to get aroused so host of number of different things that can show up Uh, but you're right that oftentimes it's connected to trauma. It's connected to the trauma related to what happened and the symptom of it, which at times is anxiety, PTSD, all of those challenges that people have. And what I see is because of the stigma connected to to what happened for men with the kind of assault situation, it's hard to open up with their partner. So you're right that like even if they're in a same-sex relationship or the relationship with with female, it's hard hard for them to verbalize it. And I know it's such a delicate thing to who you can trust this information with. Maybe it's different if you are in a kind of a committed relationship versus this is a casual hookup sex. But this is a tough decision. But my invitation for people when they've done the work and they are in a safe relationship, sometimes it's helpful to talk about as much as they feel comfortable about it uh, with their partner so they can understand where the survivor is coming from absolutely yeah and you know part of it can be that they themselves don't understand like you know because they are questioning was i a victim or wasn't i a victim they may fear rejection of course like if i tell you that i was offended on against them by a male are you going to think i'm homosexual right you know you mentioned like that they just absolutely disengaged yeah it's not uncommon for some to choose to be asexual like just this isn't going to be part of my life right and you know i mean it's unfortunate because they're missing out on some wonderful things but right. yes and you dr Merle, you're, you're 100 bang on that you know the way to the way through this is to talk about it right and you know if they need to start with a therapist that's that's a great idea right find someone who's trained such as yourself or myself that can help them you know unravel this um trauma and make sense of it themselves because when they can make sense of it a little bit more then they're feeling a lot more confident to talk about it Absolutely. And I think uh, sometimes people think they don't, they have a, uh, they have issue with knowing that recovery is possible. They think, okay, at best, I, I learned to manage or hide these emotions, but they don't see a way through it. Please tell us about the recovery. Is it a possible path for some people? Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I think it's going to be like any trauma or any situation, you know, it's, it's a new normal, right? After, you know, because what often happens is, I'm sure you're aware that, you know, when they hit their puberty or later in life, you know, when they become parents themselves, um, their trauma hits, they, they, they come to understand what has happened to them in their world. They're, they make meaning from it, right? They, they understand the meaning behind what happened to them. And, you know, the whole world's kind of become discombobulated. So helping them to sort of make sense of, you know, the fact that they were young, they were a victim is, is you know, what's necessary. You know, pointing them in the direction of the resources that are out there is a great idea. There are a lot of a lot of community resources, mostly on the internet that I'm aware of, like mailsurvivor.org, one in six, some of those big things. I, I do think, yeah, healing is possible, but it is going to be, like I said, this whole new normal, right? Like, you know, sort of, a, a, you know, the word survivor, I lived through this, but it's part of what has happened, part of my story. At times, uh, you're right, that it's part of the story, but I, I, I did my dissertation on post-traumatic growth. And I can yeah. see that people are at times, and I experienced it with some of my clients, when you work through trauma, not only you can work through it, but you can learn from it and you, you can grow from it. So that's also a possibility and that can be very rewarding. It's not going to be easy because I think that's why many people are kind of drop out of the trauma treatment because it's you're talking about difficult things and you're kind of processing things that you don't want to process. But I think personally, like seeing survivors, that it, it can worth it. Absolutely. And, you know, Dr. Morelli, one of my favorite sayings by Lisa Bevere is when you're forced to face your worst fears, you become fearless, right? So you're absolutely right about this post-traumatic growth. Yes, when you are forced to face your worst fears, it's like, okay, the, there's nothing left that's going to scare me kind of thing, right? So yes, people can have incredible post-traumatic growth. A lot of the people that are in the male survivor world right now as psychologists were victims themselves, right? So, and they have incredible strength and healing and reward from being able to help other people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Great, great. And I think also kind of like leaning into experience of, okay, this kind of psychologist is educated, this researcher, they, they work through it can be encouraging for many people to give their strength to kind of like seek help, the seek the help that they need. So I know that your book has tons of interesting stories and tips and all sorts of things related to this issue. But share with us, where can people find the book if they're interested to purchase it? Okay, well, my book is called Men Too, Unspoken Truths About Male Sexual Abuse. It is based on my doctoral research. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, in Canada Chapters carries it. So yeah, so ask for it at your bookstore. Just Google the men to Amazon's a good place. <laughs> good. I, I leave a link in the show notes. Is there any other resources or the ways that people can get a hold of you that you would like to share with us? Yeah, I have a website, kellypolfi.ca. So um, I'm kind of building it in the right now stage, you know, just kind of adding information to it. But yeah, I do keep all of my podcasts and stuff there and other psychoeducational pieces that are helpful for trauma victims. So yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much, A, for your work. I think this is such a fantastic resource for parents, for survivors. So guys, I, I read it. I loved it. I recommend it. If, even if you're not, you don't have anyone in your life that experienced this, it's a good information to have as a responsible kind of person in the community. And thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Palfe. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you. And Dr. Molly, can I just comment on that? What you just said about even if you don't have someone in your life, the reality is we all do have people in our lives that are male victims we just don't know who they are Mm -hmm. such a great point thank you you. (laughs) i hope 
you found our conversation useful. If you are a therapist or you have someone in your life that that struggled with uh, sexual abuse, I highly recommend this book. Dr. Palfi's book is called Men to Unspoken Through the Bald Male Sexual Abuse. In her appendix of the book, she listed five questions that you can ask yourself to see if you're someone that would benefit from working with the therapist to address some of these issues. So here are the questions. Are you avoiding deep conversations, certain topics, places, or people? Do you find yourself unable to engage in intimate relationships? Are you isolating? Do you feel like talking about it would make you cry? And last one, are you easily irritated or do you experience excessive anger, anxiety, or depression? If you answer yes to any of these questions, then perhaps you might benefit from working with a trained therapist to help you process some of these trauma. I hope that again, this conversation was useful and it means a lot to me if you have a moment to write a review for this show. It will help us to reach a broader audience and I'm super grateful for your support. I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.